Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. OpenAI has achieved the fastest adoption rate of any technology in history. Netflix took 3.5 years to get to a million users. Dropbox took seven months. ChatGPT, which is like the easy-to-use window into GPT-4, OpenAI's product, ChatGPT, got there in five days. Okay, so the telephone took 100 years, and ChatGPT got there in five days. That was David Schreier, globally recognized expert on technology-driven change at scale and a professor of practice, AI, and innovation with the Imperial College Business School, where he is founding faculty of the Center for Digital Transformation and leads the new Trusted AI Initiative. He also chairs the research group for the World Metaverse Council, all of which is a testament to his passion for teaching others how to harness the power of AI and innovation, as heard in that highlighted clip. Also, on a personal note, he's a longtime friend of mine whose work I've been following for two decades. In his upcoming book, Basic Metaverse, David explores the ways in which the metaverse will permeate every layer of our businesses and lives. In this podcast, he shares some insights from this book, along with how the many technologies that are buzzing in seemingly every conversation these days will change our day-to-day ways of doing business. In this episode, he shares his definition of the metaverse in very simple terms and how it goes beyond just virtual reality as it's often perceived. Several real-world examples of how AI and the metaverse are already changing industries, careers, and businesses from architecture to the practice of medicine, among many others. The sheer accelerated pace at which newer technologies are being adopted compared to previous groundbreaking technologies in history and what the implications of this might be how technology has shaped the way in which the public and private spheres work together to advance new initiatives and funding around these. Ladies and gentlemen, David Schreier. David, thank you so much for being here. It is great to see you again. We're interacting via video. It's great to see you again. It's always a pleasure. I've tremendously enjoyed our many conversations over the years. Yes, and it's phenomenal what you have done over the last decade or so, and I want to dig into that. But to get us to know you a little bit personally, could you complete the sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. I am a connoisseur of fine scotch whiskey. Mm. And now you're in the UK, so you're close to your scotch. Yeah, I've got my Royal Salute glass here with me to help ease the podcast along. So my friends at Shivas have invited me on Thursday at Westminster Abbey. They will be unveiling their new coronation blend that they've created for the ascension of King Charles. So I get to put on black tie and go enjoy some of the finest whiskey in the world. So it is really nice being only an hour's plane flight from Edinburgh and then all of the great distilleries of Scotland beyond. That's great. I heard the story of like a Japanese gentleman that learned the art and brought it to Japan and Japan now makes great whiskey as well. I don't know if you can call it scotch or not. It can be called whiskey, but not scotch. Got it. Got it. Like champagne, scotch is restricted to the six distilling regions in Scotland. All right. So this is a podcast on strategy. I ask this question of everyone. I always get a different answer. What's your definition of strategy? I like to define strategy as basically What are we going to do? And broad strokes, what's our direction of travel? 
And I distinguish strategy from tactics or operational implementation, which addresses issues like how do we maneuver around that rock that's in the middle of this road that we're traveling? And so how do you then think of applying that definition of strategy to what I know of you doing, which is around transformation technologies, almost like societal strategies? Does that definition apply? Absolutely. And the generative impulse that I look for is what problem are we solving? Because you can't just say, hey, I want to apply technology to big problems that society is facing. That ends up being too diffuse. You got to have a little more resolution and granularity than that. So I try to focus in on what problem are we solving for? And then strategy helps you align the overall picture, which everything else flows from. Got it. All right. So I'm really excited to understand what you think the emerging transformational technologies are and how they will shape society and things. But I'd like to apply that strategy a bit to what you did at MIT and Oxford. Can you tell us what your work there has been like? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been teaching for two decades plus, since 2000. I've been teaching at major universities on the side from my work in digital transformation and corporate development. And so that was a fascinating journey and very fulfilling. But around when I turned 40, I felt like I wanted to do some public service. I wanted to give back. And so I was actually hired by MIT, not originally to teach, but rather to help them solve a significant, almost existential strategic problem. At the time, MIT was like 90% funded by the U.S. government and corporate sponsors. But both of those funding sources had been steadily decreasing their funding over the years. So the U.S. government dramatically pulled back on funding since roughly 2001, since the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. That became sort of this giant sucking sound for all government funding. So everything else has been steadily decreasing, even within the DOD. And in the corporate world, you know, if you think about, for example, healthcare companies, they used to see a professor at MIT invent a new molecule for a drug, and they'd license the molecule as soon as it was patented and go and do the research. Now, they expect phase one, even phase two clinical trials to be completed before they will license that drug. And so you've gone from maybe one to five million dollars of funding to get that drug into the hands of pharma to now 20 million of funding dramatically changes the economics for these universities. So MIT was facing this major strategic challenge that the core elements of their budget were under threat and they needed breakthrough innovation in order to conquer that threat. It couldn't be incremental. You couldn't solve it with like a 10% growth. Philanthropy at MIT was much smaller at the time than Harvard or Stanford. So you couldn't just turn to donors and have them give 10% more and solve the problem. So we needed a 10 to 1 advantage, right? We needed some kind of 10x solution. And so by looking at, among other things, digital technologies and the business models associated with them, I was able to come up with some fairly novel approaches that resulted in changing how all of the top universities now handle online learning, for example. Talk to me a little bit about the scope of that and the scale of the impact. In roughly a six-year period, we brought in almost a billion dollars of financial support for MIT, Harvard, and Oxford. And it was through a novel approach to public-private partnership around delivering digital technology and improving access and opening things up to 150 countries around the world. But this became a model for the entire industry. And that was really exciting. Although that wasn't the only thing I did at MIT. I did some other things that were unusual corporate and private sector partnerships. But that was probably the biggest in terms of financial impact. Got it. 
Excellent. So talk to us a little bit now about your new book that is being published soon in the UK and then soon thereafter in the US, Basic Metaverse. We've had one guest here talk about the metaverse, but honestly, the whole bundle of technologies that got rolled up into what people call the metaverse, my mind just spins. Can you break down for us what the metaverse is and why you decided to write this book? Absolutely. So my focus is on digital technologies that can solve problems at scale that can really be transformative for business and society. And so when I look at the next five years and the big technologies that are going to impact things, metaverse and artificial intelligence, a couple of other technologies are the big things that are going to change everything. They're going to fundamentally change the way that we do business and the way that society functions. To drill down on the metaverse, as you know, my next book, Basic Metaverse, is coming out in June from Little Brown. The metaverse is, first of all, it's first person. It's a first person experience. It's immersive. You're entering a new world, a new environment that's completely engaging. It's persistent, meaning if you log out, you leave the metaverse, and then you come back later, it's still there. And changes you've made are still there. And it's communal. So everything I described, except for that last point, are true of the game Skyrim, which had, I don't know, 30 million players. It's one of the best-selling video games of all time. But a game like Fortnite or Roblox or Minecraft These games have 450 million players. It's that community aspect, I think, that makes the difference because ultimately we're communal individuals, right? If nothing emerged out of the COVID-19 crisis, it should be the knowledge that we crave to be together with other people. If we can't do it in person, we'll do it virtually, but we want that virtual experience to be better. And the metaverse delivers a dramatically better virtual experience. So after you've thought about the metaverse and you've compared its adoption to other big technology adoptions in history and in the future, how do you see business will change? And how long will it take to be adopted? Because certainly we're going to talk a little bit about ChatGPT and generative AI, how rapidly that has been adopted. My experience is metaverse is for a passive practitioner on the outside. It's frustratingly slow, frustratingly clunky. You're probably referring to virtual reality, which is a subset of metaverse technology. There are less clunky, easier to access metaverse technologies. And those bridge technologies are, I think, going to be the on-ramp for a lot of people. So we already have half a billion people using browser-based metaverse experiences like Minecraft and Roblox. These are exciting and fun and engaging The virtual reality stuff is more powerful, but requires much greater bandwidth and stronger compute power than many people have. But it is starting to get adopted. And so when you think about the major dynamics that are impacting business, like the work from home movement, the desire for people to be virtualized and be able to work from anywhere, and the green movement, everyone's trying to reduce their carbon footprint, Metaverse offers a really interesting and provocative solution. So Accenture, for example, made virtue out of necessity. So in COVID, Accenture was still recruiting tens of thousands of people a year, but now they couldn't bring them all together at those great Accenture training centers to help teach the Accenture way, to imbue the culture of a culture organization, right? If you think about what Accenture sells, it's a people with a certain way of working, a culture. That's their product. How do you do that when you can't bring everybody together? So they created something called the nth floor. It's like you step onto an elevator and you press the end button and you step out and they actually digitally scanned their offices and then they recreated them in a VR environment and used Oculus goggles and they sent them out to 150,000 employees who they trained virtual. Think about the reduction in travel time, 
in carbon footprint from flying people to all those training sessions, the costs associated with putting them up in hotels. And yet they were still able to capture a lot of the same essential sort of tactile experiences of socialization and place and space-based experience that let them deliver that training. So even though COVID now has abated, they continue to use these technologies to help train their people. And that's one of many examples of how we're starting to see this adoption creep up. Another, you know, I'm involved in a company called Kaleidico, which does augmented reality. So instead of wearing goggles, you can just take your iPhone and hold it up and scan the room and the little digital characters will appear in the environment around you. Everyone, I mean, I say everyone has a smartphone. Without getting into adoption of smartphones, lots of people have smartphones. The cost of smartphones is actually getting lower and lower. So particularly Android phones, you can get a handset now for under $50 in the least expensive deployment. And so there's a lot of access through smartphones. And now we can use that compute power and that access and bridge people into the metaverse. It's showing up in lots of places that people aren't really even consciously aware of because it's just happening around us. Got it. I like that more expansive bounds around the metaverse. I had my first, what felt to me like an experience of it. It was simply, I was at a conference and I was also on Slack with my team and something was going on in the conference and I was watching and I video parts of it and sent it to people and then they were responding and I was kind of both there at the conference and I was also with my team. No fancy technology, no headset, no virtual reality. Right. But the impulse was there to sort of integrate your environments. And so in a metaverse future that's not too far off, so you and I are both wearing glasses, we are very close to having a form factor that's this. I mean, there's one that exists that's like three times as thick, but we're very close to having a form factor that's like this that I could put on. Like normal glasses. And that would be my workspace. I don't need a laptop. I don't need a desktop. I don't need a phone. That's it. I love that. I don't even need a keyboard. I can just speak. And it will understand me. So this is where we integrate AI with metaverse. This is convergence. So I'll speak and it'll take direction from me and it'll do things. And so my entire office will be in a pair of glasses. And we are five years away from that. Wow. Amazing. So what are some of the implications of the metaverse and its adoption, the technologies, the bridge technologies that are making it more accessible? What are some of the implications that someone like me who doesn't have to spend as much time thinking about it as you would be surprised by? What do people get wrong or what do people miss? So some of the most compelling applications for the metaverse are not the flashy consumer applications. You see the consumer applications. You have kids, you've probably heard of either Minecraft or Roblox or both. My youngest was thrilled when one year I got him Robux, which is the digital currency inside of Roblox, so he could like upgrade his characters. That's the stuff that's visible to you, but where Metaverse is going to have profound near-term changes are on areas like health and medicine and urban planning and architecture. In health and medicine, you could have the world's greatest heart surgeon connect through virtual devices to a nurse, someone who hasn't had as much training in the bush in Africa. So in a remote clinic setting in an impoverished area in Africa with limited tools at her disposal, and she or he could walk through a procedure by the top expert in the area. We're getting very, very close to that capability. So for the first time ever, a major surgery was prepared for in the metaverse. There's a pair of twins who are co-joined at the head and a charity called Gemini Untwined, or Untwined, I always get it wrong, prepared over 100 medical practitioners. There were that many people on the surgical team. Very complex surgery. Two brains and all the arteries and veins, everything linked together. Surgical teams in Brazil and the UK, and they all trained in the metaverse using these Oculus goggles. 
And so instead of having to do a 3D print of the two heads and pick it apart manually and fly everyone in, this was prepared for during COVID. And so you couldn't. So they had to learn how to use the metaverse in order to prepare for the surgery. And the surgery was a success and the twins are now separated and doing very well. So we're seeing the very front end of what's going to be a fundamental change in the democratization of expertise in medicine, which is very, very exciting. In urban planning and architecture, you can now take concepts which are difficult to understand or limited. You know, you can show someone a 3D animation of a building, but it's not the same thing of letting them insert themselves into the building and walk around it and feel what it's like. Or look at the city plan and look at different parts of a city and then zoom in and drop themselves onto the street and walk around and then jump up into the air and zoom to another part of the city. So now you can have people, maybe they're not trained in urban planning or architecture. Maybe they're elected officials who are nonetheless making critical decisions about the design of a city. Now they can understand the implications of those decisions as you take these virtual visual technologies and you bring them together with other technologies like artificial intelligence to dynamically re-render the city when you make a certain decision. That's really exciting and profound. Yes, yes. And then there are follow-on implications of that on top of the other I have so many other questions regarding that and exploring that, but I know that you are also now looking at AI and a future book that you're working on is Basic AI. Why AI now and why is that an important topic for you? So I've been playing around with AI since 1991. And I say playing around with because I honestly didn't take it that seriously until about six or seven years ago because it just wasn't there yet. But what we found in my title now, I'm at Imperial College, which is, if you don't know, it's the number six university in the world, but it's better known in Europe and Asia. My title at Imperial College is Professor of AI and Innovation. So I'm quite focused on this question of what is artificial intelligence going to do now that it's reached this breakthrough in the technology? You've probably seen the headlines about ChatGPT and OpenAI, GPT-4, generative AI more broadly. I am having numerous conversations with everyone from senior government officials to C-suite executives about the implications of artificial intelligence and what these generative AI systems mean for business and society. People are achieving sometimes 20 to 1 labor compression. Wow. Wow. Think about that. That means you could eliminate 95% of jobs. And some companies are starting to do that. Look at the headlines. You see tens of thousands of layoffs. Even companies who had resisted laying off people in the face of AI automation are now stepping into that trend. So what's happened is a fundamental shift. And it's happened faster than anyone really had expected. So if you look at the adoption rate of technologies, you mentioned this earlier, OpenAI has achieved the fastest adoption rate of any technology in history. Netflix took 3.5 years to get to a million users. Dropbox took seven months. ChatGPT, which is like the easy-to-use window into GPT-4, OpenAI's product, ChatGPT, got there in five days, okay? So the telephone took 100 years, and ChatGPT got there in five days. And so that's an indication of the pace of digital technology, but also the fact that we can't move slowly in responding to this. We no longer have the luxury of time. Amazing. You get to work on just such big problems, really cool things. Unfortunately, we're only going to get to scratch the surface here. We've reached the top of our time with you. What would you suggest someone do recognizing we're facing a very different future? That's what I get from your research and your reading. We're facing a very different future. And it's coming faster than you expected. Yes. And so what should someone who's listening to this podcast do? Certainly get your book, get your next book, 
sign up for one of your programs. Go to visionaryfuture.com. We can help you think about this change. Let's chat. We're looking at $13 trillion of GDP impact by 2030. That's in less than a decade. Some businesses are going to capitalize on that, and some businesses are going to get run over by it. You cannot wait. You need to have a strategy now. You need to educate your board and your C-suite, and then you need to take action. And you can't take three years to get there. You need a strategy this quarter, next quarter at the latest. You need to start implementing that strategy this summer. You cannot wait. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for drawing the sand, how critical it is that people act on it now and for the work that you do to help us know what those first steps should be. David, thank you for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.